Welcome to First Unitarian Society of Minneapolis, the birthplace of Congregational Humanism. We carry on that tradition of free thought today, dedicated to promoting a free search for truth, meaning, and justice. Our web address is firstunitarian.org. I'm David Breeden, Senior Minister. Welcome. Hello, everybody. It's nice to be here again. Uh, a little different from last summer, and last summer was a little different from the summer before that. There's never-ending things to talk about. I'm always grateful for the opportunity to be here to share some of my thoughts. So I'm going to go back a little bit in time. When I was a journalism student at the University of Minnesota in the early 1980s, which actually consisted for me primarily of working at the Minnesota Daily College newspaper. And there I learned, uh, at the U, I learned three things that stuck with me during my career. A professor named Jean Ward taught a reporting class on research. I learned how you can find phone books in your library so that you can reach contacts on your landline phone. I learned about digests and almanacs and encyclopedias that were full of useful information on the bookshelves. I wrote my stories on a typewriter and stepped over to a copy editor who would mark it up in pencil before it was delivered to the production space where it would be typeset and miraculously turned into a printed newspaper that we could hold in our hands the next day. So that lesson shifted over time. I also learned about being objective in journalism, that you get sources from all sides of a story. You write it up as an impartial observer, do not inject any of your own perspectives, and then move on to the next story. I've been struggling with that lesson, especially as editor of Minnesota Women's Press. The obligation to journalism is about being impartial. The obligation to our readers is something different. Minnesota Women's Press always straddles that line because we uniquely offer first-person narratives. We don't have reporters simply dropping into a story, getting some quotes, and leaving. We work with a lot of first-time writers about their experiences with trauma, with inequities, with restoring ecosystems. They're not impartial. So automatically, we do present a different kind of storytelling. One that I love, as someone who's always seen media as a way of telling stories instead of imparting facts. But internally, I have wondered, is this journalism? It seems like we're somehow cheating the structure of the lessons I learned decades ago. A few months ago, I connected with one of my Minnesota Daily colleagues, who's a photojournalist with the Star Tribune, for a philosophical discussion. Now that we're in the twilights of our careers, I asked him, given all that we've witnessed and documented in Minnesota over the years, can we walk away from telling those stories? When he and I knew each other, we were barely in our 20s, embarking on our journalism careers. Now, I said, I was turning 60, and as I think ahead to the diverse hands I want to leave this publication to for the next decades, what am I leaving them? Given everything that's changed in media in our four decades, 
Can I create a new sustainable vision of the role that journalism plays in our society? During the pandemic, Minnesota Women's Press published the book, 35 Years of Minnesota Women. It showcases the stories about gender-based violence and ecofeminism and women's representation in politics and inequities and racism. I'm very proud of the book, but honestly, I also was frustrated to the point of anger to realize how much we have been writing about the same issues for decades. Given the platform I have had for five years now as publisher, and with my youngest, Dylan, about to move to Oregon for college, I can see myself in a few years sitting by a cottage, by the water, reading and writing books all day. Do I have the energy to kick Minnesota Women's Press up a notch before I go? Shortly after that conversation with my photojournalist friend, I sat in on a Knight Foundation forum that explored the very questions that I was asking myself. How is journalism going to be sustained into the future, not only in revenue, but in relevance? Nicole Hannah-Jones was in that forum. She led the 1619 Project for the New York Times, designed to fundamentally change the way we look at the consequences of slavery. She won a Pulitzer Prize for the work, among other recognitions. Then, she was denied tenure at North Carolina because a donor questioned her objectivity. She now teaches journalism at Howard University. During the Knight Forum, Nicole Hannah-Jones said that all journalism is activism. She says if you grow up white in a community with good schools, respectful police, and welcoming businesses, it influences how you view and report on those institutions, even if those with white privilege, who tend to run the newsrooms, don't see that as bias, it is. For example, we trust that police authorities are telling the truth when they tell us, as they did before a teenage girl's video footage came out, that George Floyd was a criminal who died of a medical condition after being taken into custody. I had that news release in my inbox. As Nicole said, a journalist's attitudes and values inevitably shape how facts and sources are interpreted. Reporters and editors decide what is important from our point of view. What makes the front page, what does not get covered, what sources get the most attention, how does the headline characterize the truth? It is a difficult job. And as we know from misinformation and fake news we are more mindful of today, there can be great bias involved. Nicole's words made me sit up straighter. They gave me permission to see my role in a different light. I knew what I wanted to do with my platform, with my decades of experience and my exit strategy. On my 60th birthday in April, here at First Unitarian Society, 11 women from around the state came to talk at an in-person event. We called it celebrating badass Minnesota women. And these women were definitely badass. I asked each of them to give a five-minute power talk 
about what they are passionate about and what community can do to be part of their passion. We will show a couple clips from those conversations in a few minutes. When Nicole pointed out that objective journalism is a myth, that it tends to favor status quo sources, it reminded me about what I love about what I'm doing and what we could do to take that model a step further. It should not only be the editor's and reporter's job to interpret and judge what is important, to settle on a silver bullet answer or a he says, she says form of journalism. What if we censure the grassroots individuals and organizations in the story development process? What if Minnesota Women's Press not only continued to censure powerful everyday women as the story sources, but also invited them into a virtual newsroom? We started in January by asking people in two conversations about what they are afraid of. Then we talked about some of those specifics in conversations with small groups of interested parties, mental health, healing from gender-based violence, reducing the stigmas that limit our capacity to deal with addictions, the affordable housing crisis, concerns among the LGBT community about aging and legislation. Thanks, Phil. We interviewed stakeholders engaged in solving these issues right alongside Minnesotans who care about these issues. Our next step after we generate the underwriting and funders to enhance our team will be to create a series of action steps that people statewide do together, very much like active voices here at First Unitarian Society. We want to look at the work that's involved in getting gun legislation passed, diffusing toxic masculinity, funding restorative justice practices on the front end of conflict to reduce and deflect and prevent violence instead of spending all public safety funds in law enforcement and incarceration after the harm has already been done. My theory, media does not need to be a passive product that is consumed. What if we sustain the funding, the relevance, and the importance of journalism by creating a different relationship between readers and media? What if we build a model that has the capacity to engender trust in journalism again? What if we focus on solutions journalism designed to reduce the weariness of being overwhelmed with problems and connecting people to make stories happen? Our new Changemakers Alliance was launched earlier this year. It's focused on bringing people statewide together with like-minded concerns in conversations, turning that into a story in our magazine and at womenspress.com and in our niche newsletters funded by underwriters and supporters. And then those stories lead to deeper conversations about solutions which leads to an ongoing series of stories about how people statewide are taking action to make those solutions happen. We put this model to the test for our June issue about addiction. I have a copy somewhere here. Um, I can give anybody who wants one a copy of it. 
because it kind of exemplifies what Changemakers Alliance is attempting to do. To a different degree, it's a similar model that we used last year for our missing and murdered indigenous women issue and our transforming justice issue, both very, very deep because of the conversations we had with people in community about who the story sources should be, who should be telling first-person narratives, and what all of the angles of those issues are. We're about to embark on several other topics, such as the one I just started on Thursday with a group of women about restorative justice, women here in Minneapolis who want to eventually take best practices statewide. Earlier, I said I learned three things from my earliest days in journalism training. And for those of you whose brains work this way, and I know there are a few of you in this particular audience, you might have subconsciously noticed that I haven't mentioned the third thing that I learned back then, and I'm going to put your mind at ease now. The third thing I learned about journalism, besides how to track a story and be objective, was the joy in co-creating with others. I spent much of my career as a solo freelance writer. Many of us here are introverts who get energized by being alone with our thoughts, our words, our books. But what I loved about working at the Minnesota Daily in the early 1980s was the power of co-creating with others. As an editor, sitting together in the afternoon news huddle, talking about the process of stories that might be ready that day, where to put our focus, what the lead stories might be. When we're talking about community-based solutions, the people who best know those solutions, those ideas, and those needs can be in a co-created space with us, especially in this day of virtual Q&A and meetings. We are all people trying to find answers and tell stories. My view of the media business I love is, is that we tend to be reactive writing for a passive audience. But our most engaged readers who are in this room, who are outside doing the work, are not passive. And they want to get in front of the stories to change outcomes. Doing and being together is a crucial ingredient in how our society works. It can certainly feel like politicians and capitalists and money lenders rule the stories but they are merely players like the rest of us. It is what we do in community that is the actual real deal. That is what deserves the coverage, not as simply feel-good stories, but as the center of what we write and read and care about. You'll see this articulated in our August issue of Minnesota Women's Press about the commons. I learned about the commons from Julie Ristow, I don't know if she's here, uh, former publisher of Utney Reader. She developed a website full of stories about the concept of the commons alongside her husband, J. Wall Jasper. As she explained to me, we have become so accustomed to thinking that everything is owned by somebody, yet our hidden wealth is in the common spaces and communal actions that we develop together that is actually the crucial element in our life support system. She says it was a light bulb moment for her and Jay when an Utney Reader contributor wrote about how capitalism, for example, has convinced many of us that progress is defined as replacing Main Street with shopping malls, that forests are worthless until they become timber. 
Why are companies allowed to dump waste products in our water or allowed to bottle it up and sell it back to us as drinking water in plastic containers? Why are consolidated and toxic farms allowed to leave depleted soils and grazing stock for the next generation of people who eat? As she puts it in our August issue, we have an upside down narrative that seems to allow a few people and institutions to profit from public spaces. Some things cannot be owned. As Martin Luther King Jr. put it in 1967, we have to shift from being a thing-oriented society to a person-oriented society. Being in the commons is about the reproductive choice rallies that Rev Kelly and so many others from First Unitarian Society are part of. It's about the neighborhoods who come together for national nights out. It's about the people who plant flowers next to their sidewalks or put out chessboards and free libraries for passersby. I'm being interviewed by Sue Scott on her Island of Discarded Women show in August about how women in particular are gathering in badass ways. Thanks to the International Community Solutions Network, based in DC, Minnesota Women's Press in October is hosting a Bosnian journalist who hosted me in her country in June to talk about how to elect women in a patriarchal society. Participating in the commons is not always about leading charges, but it's about sitting for coffee on a pedestrian plaza, sharing a communal meal, gathering together in a sanctuary like our own. It's about being reminded and taking that to our politicians and investors that all that we build, thanks to the internet and public funded highways and labor, is part of the community space to be shared together. Anything less than that is just less. Harriet Barlow, formerly of Minneapolis, contributed an essay to J. Wall Jasper's book, All That We Share. I stop at the farmer's market, a public institution created by local producers who want to share their fare. The same spirit prevails at our local food co-op, of which I am the owner, along with thousands of others, and at community-run theaters and civic events. These commons-based institutions provide us with essential services, the most important of which is fun. Living in the commons isn't only about economic wealth, it's also about joy. To that end, in April, when we gathered a large group together here at First Unitarian Society on a lovely Saturday afternoon, here is what three of the women that day had to share. Each and every one of us has gifts and meaning and purpose that our community needs, all of us, human beings, the earth, the land, the water, the animals, the trees, the plants. We're all part of the same community, and we have to bring forward these gifts, honor each other, and speak with kindness and treat each other with true kindness and humility and gentleness and love, because that's our way forward. That's how we're going to find ways to heal the harm that has been inflicted on so many of us and the land and the water. Because it's through joy and it's through love and it's through finding the things that and the people that we love, that's what brings real healing. Not calling each other disorders, 
and pathologies, but finding the beauty within each of us and celebrating that with each other. So, Mingwich. And Deborah, the wife in the family, just casually mentioned to me that they were evangelical Christians. And I smiled when they said that, but in my head I thought, holy shit. <laughs> because if you're transgender and you hear the phrase evangelical Christians, it's not usually something that you are accepted about as being trans. But here was this family having a meal with me, laughing. They stayed, they seemed engaged, and they were a delight. The work that I do is about breaking barriers. How you can help me is get me in front of people who think that I'm odd. And I will show them I am not. Thank you very much. And it's because of ordinary people, their movements, their intolerance of the status quo, and the commitment to making the impossible possible that I get to serve this city as its first black democratic, independent democratic socialist, something that just five months ago was also deemed impossible. And since I'm an organizer, I got some to-dos for y'all, <laughs> which I know will not upset many of y'all because I know badass women love clear directives just as much as we love hype-ass speeches. So my charge to you this afternoon is to simply chase the impossible. Seek out those who are also doing the same. This is a relatively easy uh, to do that I'm giving you because the Women's Press and the Changemaker Alliance literally just gather a bunch of us who's doing this very work in the same room together. And I want you to reach out to these women and ask them two questions. What, what are your passions and what is it that you're looking to change? And if their answers causes you to pause and even think, yo, I don't think that's possible, I want you to immediately set up a meeting with them. <laughs> I want you to donate. I want you to get all their information and show up for them. I want you to do this because making the impossible possible can never happen via one person, as Lucina mentioned. No matter how badass we may be, change ain't never came from one person. That real insomnia-inducing, transformative, scary-type change that's necessary to change our communities, our cities, and our world for the better is going to require a brigade of badass people coming together to make it happen. And we are so fortunate, so fortunate, that the very people who are leading this hard but necessary work are in the same room together, that are in the same city together, the site of one of the most historic uprisings. We get to be here and lean into the brilliance and the talent that is in this space. So to that, I can only add one thing. Perhaps a new spirit is rising among us. Thank you. Thanks for listening. You can find much more about humanism, 
and what's happening at First Unitarian Society in Minneapolis by visiting our website at firstunitarian.org. Thank you.